Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another week of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is going to be episode 21 and we're going to be looking at the chapters of Matthew 21 through 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 through 20, and John 12. There's a lot here to get into. The phrase that is going to be kind of a theme for the study this week is, Behold, thy kingdom cometh. And as always, I just want to start with giving a little bit of background into these verses and the things that uh, you'll be looking at and studying. According to the curriculum, it reads that the Savior was hungry after traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem. And a fig tree in the distance looked like a source of food. But as Jesus approached the tree, he found it bore no fruit. In a way, the fig tree was like hypocritical religious leaders in Jerusalem. Their empty teachings and outward demonstrations of holiness gave no spiritual nourishment. The Pharisees and scribes appeared to keep many commandments, yet missed the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love thy neighbor as thyself. In contrast, many people had begun to recognize good fruit in Jesus' teachings. When he arrived at Jerusalem, they welcomed him with branches cut from trees to pave his path, rejoicing that at long last, as ancient prophecy said, thy king cometh. As you read this week, think about the fruits of the Savior's teaching and atoning sacrifice in your life and how you can bring forth much fruit as well. That really is a good lead up into what we'll be talking about today. Back when my daughters were in elementary school, I remember that there was a phrase that kind of became like a motto to the kids, one that the teachers and the administration was constantly trying to reinforce in everything that they said and did with these young kids and these developing minds. And the motto was just simply this, first things first. And I think they were trying to still early on in these kids, in fact, I know they were, the priority of making sure that those things that are most important always get done first. We have a tendency, it's almost human nature, isn't it, to want to put some of the most important things at the last, typically because the most important things are sometimes the hardest and sometimes the least enjoyable. Homework, as an example, is so easy to put it off till after uh, playing video games or hanging out with friends. Or And when we follow that kind of mindset mentality, we have a hard time actually ever getting to it. But when we learn to put first things first, those most important things get done and allows time for the other things. And we develop self-respect and and experience great personal growth and development. Well, this is true not only with physical things, but also with spiritual things as well. And as we go through this week's study and these three principles that we'll highlight today in particular, I want you to consider how you're doing at putting first things first in your life and especially as it relates to the gospel and to Christ. The first principle I want to take a look at today is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 17 through 21. And it's an interesting experience that the Savior has with those hypocritical Pharisees who once again try to trap him by asking him a rather what at least appears to them to be a difficult question. As they approach him in verse 16, it says, And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, We know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. 
Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Verse 19, he says, Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. Now listen to what he says here. Verse 20, he says, And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? Verse 21, they say unto him, Caesar's. Then he saith unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Good luck at trying to trap Christ. It just doesn't work. But, boy, the principle that he teaches here is just so powerful, not only to them, but to all of us. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that which are God's. He's helping them to learn to make a distinction between the things of the world and the things of God, and to learn to be able to put them both in their proper place. And one of the ways that he's teaching them to do this is to take a close look at each thing to see whose name is on it. And the reason that I really like that is because we have all been commissioned and encouraged to take upon ourselves the name of Christ and to work towards making his image in our countenances so that when we shall see him, as the scriptures say, we shall be like him. Now, I, I know many of you, all of you should be familiar with the Toy Story movies. They've always been one of my favorites and were ever since I could remember. One of the things that I recognized early on that I love that just teaches a great principle that um, ties into this, I think, in a lot of different ways, is one of the things that was very important for these toys in this movie was to have a sense of identity and purpose. And they found that identity and purpose by the name that was inscribed on their person, usually on their foot. And it was the name of Andy. Andy would make sure to mark, write his name on them. And they took great pride in that. Look at who I belong to. This is, in a lot of ways, who I am. And not only did it help them to define who they were, but also helped them to define what they should do. That name that had been written on them became a very defining characteristic of them. It became almost a badge of honor, and they took pride in it and would show it to anyone that they came across as this is who, whose I am and who I belong to. Well, I, can you see the symbolism in that? We have been commissioned to take upon ourselves the name of Christ for very many of the same reasons. When we do that, we allow Christ to basically write his name on us, signifying that we are his. But in order for that to happen, it requires us giving ourselves to him. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Elder Neil A. Maxwell gave one of my favorite quotes uh, about this, about surrendering ourselves to Christ, when he said, The submission of one's will is placing on God's altar the only unique personal thing one has to place there. The many other things that we give are actually the things that he has already given or loaned to us. However, when we finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, we will really be giving something to Him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give. Consecration thus constitutes the only unconditional surrender, which is also a total victory. Now, young people, this is one of the most important lessons you can learn early on in your life is to recognize that you are not yours alone. We all struggle, especially at that age, trying to find who we are and our identity. 
I'm telling you, the best way for you to understand and find who you are is to give yourself to God, to allow him to write his name on you, defining you as his. After all, he is your creator. And through that process, he can help you better come to know who you are than anything else you could possibly do because he knows you better than you know yourself. But in order for that to happen, that requires you following Christ's counsel here and learning to distinguish what belongs to the world and giving it to the world and what belongs to Christ and giving it to Christ, including ourselves. And as I mentioned earlier, that's not an easy thing to do. The world wants to write its name on you. And you can see a lot of people walking around in the world with basically the world's name written on them, signifying that they belong to the world. But if you look closely enough, you can also see a much smaller group of people who are going around the world with a different name written on them, signifying that they belong to a different owner, that of Christ. That kind of decision may require us to take a stand against the world, even if at times we have to stand alone. I remember President Monson telling a wonderful story about a, a time when he was in the military and uh, Sunday was approaching and everyone lined up and they were all instructed where to go to have their different worship services. And one by one, each religion was mentioned from Baptists to Catholics to Protestants and Methodists. And he just stood there <laughs> while everyone else slowly went off to their different assignments. He said in part he was tempted to go with some of the other groups because, well, he just didn't want to be alone and the only one standing there. But he knew to what church and what God he belonged to. And so he stood his ground, even though in his mind he was completely alone, until he was surprised to hear his staff sergeant give the instruction, you other men that are here, you go wherever else, wherever it is that you need to go or want to go to conduct your worship services. He couldn't see it, but there were some other men behind him that were members as well, waiting for their religion of faith to be acknowledged and recognized. And he used that story to illustrate the point that there will be times where each of us may have to take a stand in what we believe and what we know is right, even if it means standing alone. He said as that group marched away that he thought of the words of a rhyme that he had learned in primary years before that simply read, Dare to be a Mormon, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. He said, since that day, there have been times when there was no one standing behind me, and so I did stand alone. But how grateful I am that I made the decision long ago to remain strong and true, always prepared and ready to defend my religion should the need arise. And I hope, young people, that that's a decision that you've made as well. Now, some questions for you to consider as it relates to this principle. In what ways have you given your life to God? In what ways are you planning on giving your life to God in the future? How do others know that you belong to him? How can they tell? What is the predominant influence in your appearance and countenance, the world or Christ? What can you do to give yourself more fully to him? How can you better let others know where you stand, even if you have to stand alone? How have you already had to stand alone in standing for Christ in his church? What friends do you have in your life that will make it easy to take a stand for Christ? And maybe what friends do you have that might make it hard to take a stand for Christ? Now, principle two, I want to take a look at John chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. And in these verses, it's not necessarily tied to a story, but just a great teaching that the Savior gives 
Starting in verse 25, he says that he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And that if any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there will also my servant be. If any man serve him, him will my father honor. And then this great verse in verse 27 that I love, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. He knows that his time is quickly approaching, and this verse alone illustrates the Savior's feeling a little anxious about it, a little nervous about what's to come. He's never fully experienced an atonement or the suffering that's a part of, of living in this world and that he certainly is about to go through. And there's a part of him, I'm sure, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to have this cup removed from him. But yet, he knows his purpose and he knows why he's here. And that last phrase, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Boy, I would encourage you to mark that particular phrase, young people. Again, Christ was troubled over the challenges that were his to bear. That's his human part coming out of him, the part that's in all of us. The hour that was come to him would be one that would test his strength and his resolve for both the love that he has for his Father and for us. But it would also be an hour to where he would prove himself once and for all to both God and us that he is the great Redeemer and Savior of all men. He was sent here for that purpose, for that hour. That was his mission. And the reason I love that verse so much is is because in a much smaller way, I believe each of us has a mission to fulfill here on earth. Every single one of us has a purpose to strive for and a struggle that will be ours to bear in achieving and finding that purpose. And like Christ, yes, we'll be troubled at times. You will be too, for sure. But I think in these moments, it helps to remind ourselves that this may very well be why we're here, to face just such a moment as this. If you remember the story of Esther, who faced a a similar daunting task in going to a king and asking for her people to be spared after an erroneous decree had been made, the great counsel that she was given by her stepfather Mordecai, who said, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's been a trademark of all of God's people. He uses us in a way that helps us to fulfill the reason that we came here. We may not always see it at the time. In fact, a lot of times it may not even make sense what's happening to us. But if we trust in the Lord, His timing and His plan will unfold beautifully before our eyes. As another great example, we have Joseph who was sold in Egypt. He went through quite a bit, being cast into a pit, into prison. He went through a lot of struggle, but through it all, he held on to his faith and trusted God that things would unfold for him, and they did, to the point where he became second in all of Egypt. And when he had that uh, well-known confrontation with his brothers at the end and revealed himself to them, and, and they, of course, apologized profusely for the things that they had done to him, his answer was simply, uh, it's okay that it wasn't you that sent me here, but God. That's what made it easier for him to forgive his brothers. It was his ability to see God's hand in guiding his life, regardless of what anyone else did, and allowing his struggles to become a part of his story and a part of God's purpose and plan for him. 
as he said in Genesis 45, 8, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, I'm not sure, young people, what purpose you have and what mission is yours to fulfill here on earth or what hour that you've been sent here for. But I know that you have one. And the struggle that will be yours will have the potential to be your greatest victory and will be a part of your great story and purpose. You don't know what it is, but God does. And it's up to you to choose to trust him that your plan will unfold as it is meant to. Even if you arrive at a crisis of faith and question everything that is happening to you, as I know I've been there personally myself, and I've been there many times, but I've learned that it can help to remind ourselves that maybe when this is happening to us, that this is a part of our hour, our moment, to prove ourselves and to grow and develop in the way that only we are meant to, and in so doing become a blessing to countless others through the overcoming of whatever it is that we're going through. Elder Holland taught a very powerful principle as it relates to faith when he said, I bless any among you who might be speaking these days of a faith crisis, that real faith, life-changing faith, Abrahamic faith, is always in crisis. That's how you find out if it's faith at all. And I know I sure would encourage each of us, no matter how old we are, what phase in life we are, to remember that principle. That faith, to be faith in that way, is always faith that's in crisis. That's where it gets tested. That's where it gets discovered that it was faith at all. I remember President uh, Spencer W. Kimball, who knew a thing or two about personal and physical struggle, gave a talk once titled just simply, Give Me This Mountain, in which he borrowed a phrase from the scripture to identify a mentality that is so amazing to have and to develop when facing life's challenges that instead of shrinking from them, we attack them and face them head on with the, the, the mentality of whatever mountain is placed in front of us, we're going to climb it. Just give me that mountain. I want that opportunity to prove myself and to grow in a way that will help me to become a better person. I think we can all adopt a little bit more of the Savior's mentality of give me this hour. This is the hour that I was sent here to fulfill, that for this cause came I unto this hour. What a great statement. Now, some questions to consider uh, in regards to this principle. One might be, what struggles have you gone through already in your life? Just begin to take an account of some of the mountains that you've had to climb. And how have they made you better or stronger? How have they impacted your faith? Looking back, can you possibly see any potential purposes to them or from them or in them? How can you better look at your challenges as opportunities to grow and become better? How can you help your mess become your message? And through them, how can you become better instead of bitter? Now, the last principle they want to take a look at today is Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40 where he is approached by an individual and asked a very profound question that uh, is where I would like to end and really ties into everything else we've been talking about so far today. And the question was simply asked of him, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what's the most important thing for us to do, right? What is What first thing should we always put first? Jesus' answer is one that we would do well to remember all the time in our lives. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
On these two commandments, he continued to say, hang all the law and the prophets. And one of the reasons I love that statement so much is because it resonates with me from the time ever since I was just a little boy. As a young boy, I remember I came across uh, across a quote. I started to talk like a young boy there. Across a quote, <laughs> a quote that I have always tried to live my life by. The quote was from President Ezra T. Benson, Taft Benson, who said, "When we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives." I remember in finding that verse and and having been drawn so much to it that. I even had my father put together in a little frame that quote, and I put it in my bedroom so I'd always see it. I just always wanted to remember that statement, that when we put God first, all of the other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. And as I've tried to live by that, now I haven't always, it's not always easy to do, but I have absolutely seen in my life the truth behind that statement. When we put God first, everything else does fall into their proper place or it drops out of our lives. I remember there have been multiple times throughout my life where I had to make that decision. Do I put God first or do I put him last? Do I give the, the things of Caesar to Caesar? Or do I keep him myself? Do I give the things of God to God? Do I put first things first? One time in particular that I remember back when I was younger was when I had made the all-star team for my little league baseball group that I was a part of. You have to understand, this was a huge deal to make this all-star team. It was a night and day different experience from one year to the next. This was the second year that I had played baseball. My first year was absolutely one of the most forgettable yet painful experiences of my entire life. I went through an entire season without getting a single hit, striking out just pretty much every time. I maybe walked a couple times, and those were super exciting moments for me. But more often than not, I just I couldn't hit the ball. I struggled so much at it. One game in particular, I remember I struck out six times. I was in tears by the end of the game. My team just didn't even know what to say to me. They were I could see their heads just begin to drop whenever my name was announced to be on deck because they knew I was an easy out. Well, my father took it upon himself to help me improve, and I decided I, I wanted to try to get better as well. So that summer, we just practiced a ton. Um, he threw tennis balls to me, and I just hit, hit them one after another. I just practiced over and over every single day, and the next year was quite a different story. I was hitting all the time. I got my first home run. I was voted to be on the all-star team of the league. And so I was so excited to be an all-star. And when the uh, game, the games were announced, the schedule was announced, the, the coach then informed us of when the practices would be held for, for this team. And one of the practices happened to fall on a Sunday. And it was important for me to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's something I've just had always done since I was a young person. And yeah, it could have been really easy to justify, oh, it's it's an all-star game, it's it's practice. I, I knew that I had a decision to make. And my parents, in a lot of ways, let me make it. And although it was hard, I decided to forego that practice. But what made it even harder was when I informed my coach of that decision. He said, well, if you don't make the practice, you won't play in the game. Uh, as I went home and thought about that again, I had a decision to make. And I just, all these things we've been talking about came into play in that moment in my life. And I decided to to not go to practice that Sunday. I informed my coach and he informed me he wouldn't be playing. I said, that's okay. And, and I went to church and did all of that instead. 
Well, the day of the game came, and it was probably a good thing that I didn't play because we got beat, I remember, pretty bad. And I was sitting on the bench, but I wanted to play. It was my first All-Star game, and I was pretty down. But I think, fortunately, because we were getting beat so bad, the very last inning, the coach said, Downs, go ahead, get in there. And uh, it was my turn to, to get up to bat. And I got up, and it was the first pitch. And I just, I just connected with it so good and just send it sailing right out of the park for a home run. The only points that my team scored for that particular game is I ran around the bases, big smile on my face. I remember looking over at my coach, kind of catching his eye and him just shaking his head. <laughs> like, well, the lesson that he wanted to teach me clearly was not received uh, in the way that it was meant to be received. But Yet it was just another testimony to me that when you put God first, everything just falls into place or drops out of our life. And I've tried to live by that that motto really throughout my life, probably more so than anything else that I have come across. President Benson said along with that, he said, why did God put the first commandment first? Well, because he knew that if we truly loved him, we would want to keep all of his other commandments. We must put God in the forefront of everything else in our lives. He must come first, just as he declares in the first of his Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When we put God first, he said, All other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Our love for the Lord will govern the claims for our affection, the the demands on our time, the interests we pursue, and the order of our priorities. It's been kind of fun over the years as I've taught this principle and I know one of the things that the young people typically struggle with is doing homework on Sundays. It's uh, an empty day. It's a day to try to get caught up. And and yet there are some great promises associated with keeping the Sabbath day holy. And I've challenged many of my students over the years to do as much as they can during the week and to try to save that day, trusting that things would be better, not worse for them. And it's been amazing as student after student has come to me and said, you know what, Brother Downs? It works. It really does. My grades have improved, even though I've been spending less time, it feels like, on homework. I don't know how it works. I just know that it does. Same is true with tithing, right? It doesn't make sense that we can end up getting more by having less, but we do. That's just the way God works, and that's the way that faith works, and that's the way it works when we put God first. So a couple of of key questions for you to consider on this one is one, simply, how can you better put God first at home, at school, when you're with your friends or even at work? Have you had any experiences where putting God first brought blessings? Have you had any experiences where putting God first brought challenges? Because sometimes that happens. If you remember again, Joseph of Egypt put God first in everything that he did. And sometimes that landed him in a pit. Sometimes not being immoral uh, landed him in prison. Uh, There's things that happen sometimes that When we put God first, it doesn't always mean things will be easy, but it does mean that things will fall into their proper place. And for Joseph and his life story and experience, those proper things led him to some amazing things because he continued to have faith and continued to put God first in all that he did. Um, How does loving God first affect our love for others? How does loving God first affect our love for ourselves? Some great questions to consider there. I hope that that a lot of this has been helpful. Again, I think if there's one aspect or theme to draw from this week's study, it's to ask ourselves the question, are we putting first things first? We've been taught that ever since we were little. And sometimes going through life, we forget and we lose sight of what really matters most. 
But I just want to share my witness to you that when you put God first, I know that everything will fall into its proper place in your life or drop out of your life. doesn't always mean that things will be easy, but it does mean that they will unfold in the way and the time that God knows that they should, and it will all work out in the end. Remember, everybody, that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of Christ and who puts Christ first. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ because He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And He invites us all to come follow me. So, what do you say we follow him better this week and become better as we follow him and do so by putting him first? Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.